Good to have you guys with us tonight uh, as we begin our Christmas season, apparently, uh, here at the University of Montana. Um, uh, I am. I made a joke about uh, wanting you guys to show up to the volleyball game so that I wouldn't have to be an awkward date with my wife. Um, but I love my wife, uh, and actually, I consider myself one of the lucky guys, uh, and I've only dated one woman my entire life. And that's, for those of you in here who have not dated, I hope you get as lucky um, as I got with that. Um, and, and I'm batting a thousand in terms of relationships. That was the first thing I said to Sarah. Uh, there's actually the second thing, because the first date I thought went really well. She thought less so. Um, but uh, when, we, when we had a talk about our potential, I said, I want about a 1,000. Um, I, I hope, if we start to date, the hope is that we get married. Uh, it was really forward um, and really intense, but it actually helped us a lot. And we discussed things we wouldn't have otherwise discussed. Um, but even though I didn't date in college um, or in high school, it didn't mean that I didn't do subtle things to try to woo the ladies. Um, and one thing I would do with girls who I would potentially be interested in um, and who I thought might potentially reciprocate was I would act like I liked the things they liked. It was like a chick flick um, in a lot of ways. For instance, one of my friends um, was into poetry slams. And I'm like, well, here's a girl who's single and attractive uh, and a believer. Maybe I should get into poetry slams. And so I went and went to this like scarfed, knit bar with dim lighting and people started slamming poetry. Um, I, poetry slams is a false word. Uh, it's, it, it creates false images in your mind because it sounds exciting. If you've ever been to a poetry slam, it's more like a poetry stand up and drone on. Um, it's not very exciting. And so while I went there being like, oh, I'm gonna like this so we can have something in common, I realized I hated poetry slams. Um, and as much as I wanted to like them, uh, I couldn't. It was a horrible experience. Rather than finding this enjoyment and this social connection where we could talk about these deep meta-narrative issues in our world, I was actually just finding discontent in abstract amateur poetry. Um, and one thing I realized in trying to do this a couple times and failing is that it's hard to create affection for something, isn't it? We use that phrase, acquired tastes, and it's easy enough to acquire a taste, right? If you drink coffee enough, you can acquire a taste for coffee. My wife keeps telling me if I eat sushi enough, I will acquire a taste for sushi, although I still don't believe that. Um, but we can, in some senses, acquire tastes. You probably have a taste that you once hated, um, but as a food now, you now enjoy. But one thing I've realized, it's a lot harder to acquire affection to acquire love than it is to acquire a taste. And that's because the heart is far more picky than the tongue. And Paul is really hitting his stride here as we're going through the book of Romans uh, this year, looking at how we live as believers, what it means to live as a Christian. Um, and as we begin chapter 7, uh, he's beginning to turn his message from what our hearts look like before Christ, okay? Uh, especially chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's talking about our life before Christ. Um, and now he's beginning to talk about what our life looks like with Christ in it. And he's in this transition period where he's beginning to move more and more to how we should act as Christians. But in order to bridge old life, new life, he's using a bunch of comparisons right now. In, in chapter 5, he talked about death in Adam, life in Christ. In chapter 6 last week, he talked about slavery to sin and slavery to God. He's using these parallelisms, these two-isms, to show how things once were 
and how things now are in Jesus. And today he's going to continue this comparison, but he's going to be focusing on the affection of our hearts. And that's because Paul knows that really at our core, we are not complex creatures. We are simple people. And he knows what your heart loves, your life will follow. That's why he's showing these polar opposites. If you say this, your heart will live like this. If you say this, your heart will live like this. And if you say this and your life doesn't look like this, I don't think you really believe this. And so what we're going to see today um, is kind of the last um, section of these comparisons. And we're going to see that the death of Christ releases us from faulty affections and failing service and marries us to a new affection and a spiritual service. So again, we see this, this comparison, faulty affection, new affection, failing in complete service, new spiritual service. And so tonight, Paul is going to be, Romans is a book of logic. He's not dropping these deep bombs on us. He's appealing to things we already know to be true in light of the cross. And so he's going to give us three pictures of logic tonight that prove his point. The first is the logic of law. Second is the logic of life. And lastly is the logic of love. So we're going to look at Paul's uh, words, God's word in Romans 7, 1 through 6. But before we do that, let's pray. Um, Lord, what a great song we sang to open this to you. All hearts are open. Um, and in order for us to receive this text tonight, our hearts must be open to you. It must be opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to accept these things which can seem so counterintuitive to our sinful selves that you bring them in like a warm blanket. You wrap it around us and make it wonderful and true and real. Lord, I pray for people in here who uh, do not yet know you. I pray that over the course of tonight, you will win them to the truth and the love of the gospel. I pray for those of us who are believers in here, Lord, that as this text promotes a new type of service, a full service, a true service, that our lives will look different not only by what we say and where we worship, but by how we act and love as an outcropping of the gospel. We pray this happens tonight. We pray that you work powerfully through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, Paul spent most of last week, for those of you who are here, talking about slavery um, and freedom. We were once slaves to sin, he has freed us from sin, but then made us slaves to God. That sounds awful, but last week we looked at how beautiful that is. To be purchased out of slavery to another is better than true or better than absolute freedom. If that's confusing to you, you can go look at it online, but you probably don't care, so you can talk to us afterwards. Um, but that's what we looked at last week is this freedom from sin. And today, he's going to be talking about freedom from the law. Last week, we were free from sin. This week, we're free from the law. And he starts by making an appeal to common sense, okay? Do we have any uh, law people in here, pre-law people? Typically not. They're all conserved on their own little building in the corner. But here's what Paul says. We all know this. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So in one sense here, Paul's using the law, and he's talking about that Old Testament, right? For those of you who have grown up in the church, this Old Testament is typically called the law, the first part of your Bible. And so he's talking to the Jews who know that. But he's also talking to the average, everyday Roman who knows what a law is. And really what Paul is saying here is common sense 
even to us. We all know that death ends a law, right? How many of you have gotten a wonderful pink envelope on your windshield from the UM parking department? Okay, how many of you know that upon certificate of death to the UM, because I'm sure that's what's gonna happen. When you die, your parents are gonna send a certificate of death to the parking commission here. And on that, they will say, well, Tyler's not responsible for that anymore. We might go find Tyler's mom and get money from him, but Tyler's not gonna pay that debt because he's dead. He, that's what happens when you die, is you're dead. You fail to write checks. You fail to appear in court. You fail to be bound by anything because you're bound six feet under, okay? Death ends the law. Someone else might have to deal with it, but that individual, when, you're, when you die, you're no longer responsible for it. Don't we wish that would happen finals week, right? What's the only way to get out of finals week? You die. <laughs> That's it. You die or Jesus comes back. So you could pray for those to happen. One, you each get to meet Jesus if you know him. So uh, let's pray that it's the latter. Uh, so, so to help us see this logic even more, Paul's going to give us an example of marriage. Okay? He's saying, you all know the law. You know that this works, but let me show you how it works. Let me show you how you'll be released from the law upon death. And this is the first point. This is the logic of law. Romans 7, verses 2 through 3. Paul says this, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay? No, one has been, no one's world has been rocked by what has just been said, right? We understand this. Two, three weeks ago, I was in California sweating in 107 stinking degrees doing a wedding ceremony. And, and to this couple, I said at the end of their vows, they each said, till death do us part. That's an assumption for marriage, even in our culture where marriage is starting to, to mean less and less. And I would argue that the majority of marriages, whether Christian or not, still include the line, till death do us part. Because naturally, on the surface, when we see marriage, ideally, everyone knows it should be for life. Everyone knows it should be until somebody dies. Divorce was not God's original intent in designing marriage, nor is it anyone's intent, Christian or non-Christian, when they get married. No one gets married saying, man, I can't wait to be divorced. I can't wait to see how this ends in court. However, even though that's not the intent, it happens, right? People marry poorly. They lack endurance. They're ungracious. They're hostile. They're hard-hearted. And they fail to continue in their marriages. Let me just caution you um, before we move on here. We live in a wonderful time, okay? I made a Swaggy J graphic in about six seconds before this. That's unprecedented, <laughs> We live in an age where technology has given us access to things at our fingertips in milliseconds. We can do so much, so often, and so easily with our lives. And we're coming to a point where our generation is, is, is very eager to click donate $5 on Twitter and you give $5 towards a cause. We are less eager to do something about that. Because it's easy to give $5, it's harder to do something 
okay? And so what that means is that our generation is going to be easily disheartened by things which require effort. We're so used, I call it the microwave generation. If we can't have it in 30 seconds, right? We don't even press like the minute button anymore because that's like three presses. We press add 30 and that's it, okay? That's how easy our life is. And when anything requires effort from us, we become disheartened and we say, this isn't worth it. If you think marriage is going to be as easy as ordering a pizza on a Domino's app, you're gonna be disappointed. We need to have a right expectation of what it means to enter into a relationship where you serve one another. Because it takes effort, it takes hardship, it takes grace, and it takes forgiveness. In order to have a right perspective of marriage which endures, you have to understand that your heart sinfully seeks isolation from someone, not humble cohabitation or cooperation with someone. It's easy to do life on your own. It takes effort to lovingly serve and interact with a spouse. And so as us, as our generation proceeds forward and we wrestle not only with a morality, which is lower, which makes divorce more acceptable, but also the effort we put into relationships is a whole lot lower. That's why porn is so prevalent today. It takes zero effort to look at porn, okay? In real life, it takes effort to get to that point. But we don't have to exhibit that in porn. Click of a button. And so as we become disheartened at the lowest common denominator of effort, it means that we need to find relief in three different ways in terms of our marriage. Our culture looks to find relief in three different ways. Adultery, divorce, or death. Those are the three ways that people can find relief from marriages which seem to not be joy producing. And the easiest of all of these is death. It is. I, Sarah and I, we just watched this movie on Netflix. I can't tell you what it's called because it was on Netflix. And no one really looks at movies on Netflix. They just press play and watch. Um, and we watched this. And the, the plot of this was, is this rich guy trying to find funny ways to accidentally kill his wife um, so that he could be rid of her. She was a burden at this point, And it was kind of this goofball dark comedy uh, where he's just trying to off her. And it doesn't work. Outside the realm of fantasy, we see fact is often stranger than fiction. For in 2013, a 21-year-old Michigan woman was arrested for soliciting a hitman to kill her husband. Right? She's only 21 at this point. There's only so much discontent you could have birthed in that marriage. Um, but this is what she said. Listen to this. This is an actual quote from her. When I first decided to do this, it's not that we weren't getting along. As terrible as it sounds... It was easier than divorcing him. I didn't have to worry about the judgment of my family. I didn't have to worry about breaking his heart. All that stuff. The, like this is just a clean getaway. You see, she knew and articulated things that none of us would articulate, but all of us knew to be true. And that's that death is often the easiest way out of an obligation. But death is also ultimate, isn't it? <laughs> No one wants to die. And Paul's painting this portrait of frustration here in Romans. He's showing a woman who doesn't have affection for her husband. And that can be hard. And that can be awful. And that can be trying. But her only alternative then is the hard lifestyle of adultery, which is equally burdening. 
And it's true. For that woman in that covenant relationship, to have a relationship with someone not that husband, even to have strong affection for someone not that husband, is adultery. So she's faced with two hard choices. Choice one, try to love and serve a husband whom you have no affection for. Or choice two, be burdened by adultery. Be stuck in the scandal and the secrecy of trying to keep a relationship under wraps. And the irony of those is this. Each are under a law. One is under the law of marriage. One is under the law of adultery. Either way, you're coming and falling under a law. And there is no way out of her prison except for death. That's what it says. If her husband dies, her affection is now untethered. Her affection is unhindered. If the husband dies, the marriage law no longer applies. If the husband dies, she's free to love another man. In order to be free this, for this situation, death is needed. Death is needed for this woman to be free. So that's Paul's illustration. He's illustrating, and now he's going to explain his illustration. And this is the second point tonight. This is the logic of life. This is verses 4 through 5. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So here Paul uses this phrase at the beginning, likewise. And he, he's using that to say, I gave you an illustration, now I'm going to start assigning names to those people. Who is the woman? Who is the man? Who is the law? And what he says, and what we, we gather here, is that we are the woman. Believers are the woman in the situation. If you didn't see that yet, you are the one bound, to, bound by a law to something which doesn't produce joy. You're bound by a law to something which is only a burden, but through the death of someone, you're able to find love again. That's what Paul's saying. You were bound, but Christ died, and now you have another. And Paul is using a language he's used a lot here in Romans so far. He says that we are free because, a phrase we've already seen, you have died to the law. What does that mean, okay? What does that really mean? You have died to the law. For those of you in here who consider yourself believers, when did you die? When did, when did you die? When did your heart stop beating? When did the university parking department get a certificate of your death and release you from all legal requirements of your $15 parking ticket. Is it still 15? 20 now? Oh my gosh. Kids these days. Um, when did that happen? It says you died to the law. This is true of believers. When did you die? Death is needed. Did you die? Did you cease to exist? Did you fail to have life? But look back at Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, this is important. We died when Christ died. That means we have only died 
because Christ has died. If Christ has not died, none of us in here have yet died. But if Christ has died, every believer in here has died. This sounds really confusing, but this is what Paul said a couple weeks ago in Romans 6 verse 3. This isn't new. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is why this is important, okay? You're, Tyler's using a lot of really redundant logic here, but why is this important? You see, the release from the former woman's husband is only beneficial because his death was effective for her. Do you understand? It was only a release for that woman because the husband died and that husband's death did something for her. Because you see, if she were to die, would she have been free? She would have been dead. <laughs> dead people don't marry. Dead people don't find freedom. So for her to die, to sin, through the husband, is of utmost importance because she shares in the death of another. Likewise, as Paul says, this is true for you. You share Christ's death intimately as a believer, but distinctly. You did not die in the same way Christ died. You were not paraded before thousands of men, spat upon, crucified, stabbed in the side, and buried in the ground. Christ was. But we are given all of the freedom Christ's death accomplished because we share in his death without actually dying. This is the beauty of gospel love. Now, what does it mean to have died to the law? When Paul speaks of the law, he's referencing these moral commands given in the Old Testament. These commands were given as a prescription to the people of God to have fellowship with God. This was the logic, okay? God created a perfect people in the garden. People sinned. God's still perfect. People are sinful. So God says this, if you want to be my perfect people, live perfectly. These are the perfect laws. These are what it means to live perfect. So live it. Be perfect. To be with a perfect God, you must be a perfect person. And the law was the guidelines to perfection. The law was the requirements to graduation. And for Jews, this law was their hope, their comfort, their pride, and their satisfaction. You see, I find it funny that Montanans, I don't find it funny because I'm one of them. When people do like contests or polls for state pride, Montana's always at the top. We like boast in being Montana. And the funny thing is, I'm one of the loudest, most obnoxious boasters of Montana, but I'm from California, okay? But this law was that Montana boast of the Jews. That we are rugged, we are tough, we are perfect, we are redeemed because we are law abiders. In the same way, we would say, snow, bring it. Freezing temperatures, North Dakota, you got nothing. We've got freezing temperatures and grizzly bears that will eat you. Deal with that, okay? And so they boast in this, but not realizing that it was empty because no one kept the law perfectly. It's a pass-fail. To have transgressed the law, to have broken the perfect command is to be 
imperfect. The law was unable to bring salvation to the Jews, even though they boasted in it. And what Paul said earlier in Romans 3 verse 20 was this. He says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That's to be declared innocent in the sight of God, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So these Jews are boasting on this law when Paul's saying the law only condemns you. The law only shows you that you are not perfect. So what does this mean for us? Okay, how many of you woke up this morning and thought, do I have uh, a rail around my roof so people don't fall off? Do I have clothing made of two fabrics? Have I eaten shellfish? Okay, these are all regulations given in the law that we don't bear, but the people in uh, Paul's time did. So what does this mean for us? See, we know the law, not in terms of the legal requirements, but we know the law in terms of its binding nature. Because here's the thing, we still, each and every one of us, find ourselves bound to things. And what I mean by that is, the law lives in our hearts as we become contractually obligated to desires outside of Christ. And we do this all the time without even knowing it. We look to all sorts of things to find our satisfaction and we contractually make this law with ourselves. We say, if I accomplish this, if I do this, if I have this, if I date her, if I look like him, then I will be happy. And so we, taking that law, put all of our time, talents, and treasures to pursue that, hoping that when we get there, it proves to pay out. It proves to be true. And so our lives, as soon as we make that demand from something, our lives become ruled by the law that your own heart created, binding and hoping to find satisfaction in something else. And what Paul just talked about last week is that means you become enslaved to your own desires. You become enslaved not to something that someone comes and subjugates you to, but you become enslaved by your greatest passion. And when our hope and when our salvation becomes bound to anything outside of Christ, we live a life of deep paranoia. <laughs> because we worry, we fret, and we labor to make sure nothing touches the idols that we've put in our life. If I will only be accepted with so-and-so college degrees, and I'm in, uh, I lose financial standing, I can't pay tuition, your life's ruined. If your dream is to um, be a professional athlete and you break your leg in such a way you'll never run again, your life will be broken. If your dream is to be a scientist to find a cure for something and you realize you can't even pass organic chemistry, your life will be shattered. For we worry that our dreams will fail if the objects of our hope become damaged. But here's the thing. All of the things we can hope in in this world will fail because they will fade and they will rust and they will go away. Your wives, your husbands, your friends, your degrees, your finances, your accomplishments will either die 
rust or be forgotten over time. That is not a true hope. That is not an obligation that is able to fulfill. But Christ came to free us from that obligation by dying to its curse. Christ died to the worthlessness of the empty promises we made. Christ died to the pettiness of the effort we put into idols. Jesus came to expose the emptiness of the things outside of himself by proving that he is most glorious by dying and rising again. That means that in Jesus, we find satisfaction in him fully and truly for no rust can take him, no death can claim him because he's already defeated it. And he's risen and it has proved to be infinitely and eternally valuable through the cross. That means for you as a believer, if this Jesus is your Jesus, you no longer need to subject yourselves to theological poetry slams, hoping to find enjoyment and satisfaction in things that which will never provide salvation or enjoyment. Because you have seen that true satisfaction, enduring worth, and ultimate glory isn't from the objects, ideas, or realities we paint here on this earth, but from the person of Jesus Christ who has proved himself invaluable by dying and rising again for our sins. And the result of this, this huge verse at the end of Romans 7 is this, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So to fully understand what Paul is saying now, we've looked at Paul's illustration, we've looked at Paul's explanation, now we need to look at those together. And this is the final point tonight. This is the logic of love. And as I looked at this text this week, I was really struck by something. Because Paul makes it clear in here, we're the woman in the illustration above. We're the woman who doesn't have love for a husband and is desiring another, hoping that that husband dies so that she can be free and love someone else. We're the one under the law, bound to someone we couldn't love, desiring things which only bore death. And because of that, because I identified with that, I sided with the woman. I wanted that husband to die. I wanted that woman to be free. I wanted her to find what it says in verse 3, to find another, to marry another man, to have that freedom, to go where her heart truly desired. And I assumed that the husband was the bad guy. Didn't you? When you read that, don't we side with the woman? Don't we want her to be free? Don't we want that storybook ending? We want the woman to be with the other man. It's like we assume that this other husband is this evil, conniving Jabba the Hutt figure, and this is an innocent, pure woman who just wants to be loved by someone who would love her. But in this text, we don't know anything about the husband, except that he has an unfaithful wife. We don't know anything about the husband, except that the wife desires another. We don't know anything about the husband except that his wife is flirting with adultery. And if we take the illustration and we pair it with the example, what does Paul say about the woman? If we're the woman, what does Paul say about us in verse 5? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear 
fruit for death. You see, we are the problem in that illustration. You see, in Paul's marriage example, it's not the husband who's flawed, but the affection of the wife that's flawed. And and Paul doesn't use this example in a vacuum. It's not that Paul sat, twiddled his thumbs and said, oh, marriage makes sense for this. You see, the illustration of marriage is one which Paul employs frequently to refer to Christ as the husband and the church as the bride. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives one of the most beautiful paragraphs touching both humans in terms of marriage and Christ in terms of redemption. He says, husbands, love yourselves as, or love your wives, excuse me, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her holy without blemish, without spot or wrinkle, Love your wives in such a way. And so that's the New Testament context. It's always paired with Christ and his church. Marriage doesn't just mean something in terms of humans. That's why we as Christians fight for a right view of marriage because it's the clearest representation of the gospel in a world which desperately needs the gospel. We don't fight because we simply believe in gender roles. We fight because we believe in the gospel. And the gospel saves individuals. And so it's true in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, do you know what the most dominant illustration God uses to refer to his people is? Marriage. God always refers to himself as the husband of his people. Metaphorically, in Ezekiel 16, uh, 16 verse 8, he speaks of this, and and he's painting Israel as this babe he finds in the field, um, and they were naked, and they were, they were abandoned. And then he says this, he took them. And when I passed by you again, I saw you and behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. And you became mine. What a beautiful portrait of love. And see, for us in the garden, we had that perfect relationship with God. We had the perfect relationship with our husband, but sin ruined it. Sin brought flaws to it. Yet the assumption for all of God's people throughout the Bible is still that God is your rightful husband. And Ezekiel paints this picture of God finding us in the mud, alone and abandoned, taking us and saying, you will be mine. I encourage you to read that Ezekiel 16 because God goes on to, sh- to say not only did he find us naked and afraid, he came to us and he clothed us. He married us. He washed us. He anointed us. He clothed us in royal robes. He adorned us with the finest jewelry. He crowned us in crowns of gold and presented us before the nations as his beloved. Why would we want to leave that. Isn't that everyone's dream? To be loved and cared for in that way. So why does the woman in Romans 7 want to leave the husband? And why does Israel in the Old Testament seek to leave God? It's because of the law. You see, the law says, you want to be the wife of the perfect husband? Act perfectly. Be holy as God is holy. A perfect king demands a flawless queen. But viewing our own imperfections and frailty 
and the inabilities to meet the letter of the law and to measure up to the standard worthy of the king, we chose to leave perfection for the fellowship of the imperfect. We sought to find acceptance in that which, like us, was unacceptable. We turned not to things that were perfect, but to things that were flawed because there we found company. There we found our own likeness and we turned to other men and other passions and other false promises and other hopes and other dreams and other idols and other pipe wishes, other comforts, hoping that we would find peace in those. But those were not our husbands. Those were not the ones that found us and clothed us and adorned us and presented us and cherished us. Continuing this example, in Hosea, God says this of his adulterous spouse in verses 7 through 8. She shall pursue her lovers, those are her adulterous lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. It's another false god. You see, when we were under the law, when we are before Christ, when we are outside of Christ, he has given us over to the passions of the adulterous woman. He has given us over to our sinful passions. Did you see it? For that purpose, that it would be empty. That we would find it to not fulfill us. He says, I'll give you over and you'll seek them and you'll pursue them and you'll hope for them and you'll long for them and you'll crawl for them and you'll beg for them, but you will never find them. For it was never them who was meant to satisfy you. But it was your faithful husband, even though you were faithless. However, even upon that realization, the woman in Romans 7, Israel in the Old Testament, or us today, we on our own are unable to return to him for the same problem. Our hearts don't meet the law. We cannot know our husband truly because we fail to match up. Our hearts cannot love what they cannot fully know when all we know is sin. We couldn't have the proper affection because we didn't have the proper heart. You see, in order to be free to have affection for the husband which our heart was dead, someone needed to die. The old way wasn't working. The old way wouldn't work. Someone in this awful, horrible marriage, someone needed to die. And it should have been the wife. It should have been the faithless wife. It should have been the adulterous woman. It should have been the one who rejected the true love and turned to sin and turned to those who would hate her. But the logic of gospel love is that our true husband, instead of handing us over to face the penalty of our own justice, handed himself up to be crucified. He died 
The husband who was abandoned, he put an end to the law of marriage. He died to the law of perfection, not for his sake, but for our sake. And more than that, he rose again. You see, this is the beauty of Romans 7, verse 4. Listen to it again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to him, to another, who has been raised from the dead in order that we bear fruit to God. You see, the beauty of Paul's marriage illustration Is it the husband we had before the death of someone? Is the husband we get after the death of someone? Because that husband came not only to redeem us, but to win him back to himself in a new way, in a new relationship, in a new setting, beyond, above, and before the law. And this is why we see the new language in Romans 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the letter of the written code. You see, our husband died to win us back. For in the old way, we could have never had a right affection. It would have been torture for us to be called to love, worship, and obey someone who we could not love because our hearts were broken. Yet that's who we should have loved. From day one, when we reject God, we are that adulterous woman. And you need to change, but we can't. But Jesus came. We could never be content with our Jesus because our hearts were dead in discontent. But Jesus died to the old law in order to make us alive according to the Spirit. That means that we are one to Christ, not by rules and regulations of righteousness, of looking better before men by the letter of the law, but we are one to Christ by the more effective regeneration of the Spirit, which looks at us from the inside and changes the heart and says, you can now love your husband rightly. We cannot work ourselves up to love God, but God can give us a new heart which longs for him. You see, we can know Christ and love our husband truly because he has died for us and in so doing, we have died with him. We have been delivered from the deadly passions of our own heart by the passion of the faithful husband, Christ. See, here's the conclusion here. Paul says this love produces something. In chapter 6, he talks about being a slave, doing work. He uses language of presenting yourself. He uses language of being an instrument for something. What we just saw in verse 4 says that the one who has been redeemed by this husband produces fruit for God, produces fruit for the purpose of serving God. In verse 6, he says we are now able to serve our new husband in the way of the Spirit, not in the broken way of the law. You see, the purpose of redemption is not only a positional change of our eternal security, but a positional change in the service of your hearts. To know God is not only to spend eternity with him, but it's to labor and love to serve him now. You see, Paul is going to talk a lot, starting in chapter 8 and moving forward, of what it looks like to serve God. But right now, he's not after what it looks like. He's not testing 
to see if you're doing it. He's testing to see if you desire it. So here's my question for you. Do you desire to serve God? I don't care if you know how to do it. I don't care if you have a game plan yet. We'll work with that. But do you desire to serve God? Because here's the thing. Tomorrow's Friday. It's my day off. I don't know how I'm going to serve my wife or my children. I don't have a set game plan, but I know I want to do it. I know I want to show them my love by serving them, by caring for them, not just in my words, but in my actions. I know that when I'm presented with an opportunity to serve them well, as much as I can in my limited capacity, I want to do it. And you know what? There are going to be times where I won't do it well. There will be times where I choose to be selfish, but I know I want my life towards my family to be typified by the way in which I serve them. Yet my family didn't save me. My family didn't die for me. My family didn't redeem me. And my family is not the object of my worship. Do you have that same view of your life before God? Do you view tomorrow as a day filled with uncertainties in many regards, but of the constant certainty and hope that tomorrow I wish to serve my God, that tomorrow I wish to produce fruit that is glorious for his name, that tomorrow I seek to live for the glory of the faithful husband who died for the faithless wife, that tomorrow I desire to serve the husband who has faithfully served me, And this is not only the right response to the death of Jesus, it's the most joyful response. And you see, when Paul talks about, when he uses the phrase, um, passions aroused by the law, the root word of that is just feelings. (laughs) And you see, oftentimes it's our feelings which have gone astray. And it's our feelings which say, a life lived in service to Jesus is not enjoyable but your feelings make great followers and awful leaders. What we know is God's word to be true. As the Apostle John says, as we'll look at this weekend at Sovereign Hope, that when we serve God, God's love is perfected in us. There is nothing more joy-producing than a believer who is having God's love perfected in them. So tonight, I want you to look soberly at your own heart. I don't want you to think about what you're doing. I don't want you even to think of a game plan yet. Paul's going to get there. We're going to get there. But I want you to look at this story and honestly, soberly, think about who you are. Are you running to other men in this parable, running to other vices, hoping to find something you will never find? Is the chief of your affection something outside of Christ? Are you trying to build an affection or standing before Jesus off of your ability to attend church, read your Bible, and sing worship songs, hoping that that will save you? Or are you seeing the death of Jesus as the end of an old love and the beginning of a new love, which not only signifies your salvation, but certifies you for joyful service to the faithful husband who gave everything for his faithless wife? Let's pray.